0: Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: The main symptom that most people know is the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes, the night sweats, and the resultant insomnia. A lot of women don't realize when they're starting to get sort of deep muscle aches and bone aches, is actually as a result of that drop in oestrogen that they're experiencing. And it can happen to about 30% of women, maybe more, they don't often necessarily realize that it's because they're going through the menopause that they're having these pains. It's about the things that we eat, the amount that we move, the amount that we drink alcohol, the amount that we sleep. They all have really important factors that will help to determine how many symptoms we get. It's a really big thing. And there's a lot of embarrassment around it when there really shouldn't be, shouldn't be.
0: That's Dr. Gemma Newman. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey, friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you. I hope that you've been having a beautiful week. If you are by chance joining us for the first time, welcome. It's about time you turned up. We've been waiting to hang out. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions in a world of misinformation, disinformation, and quite frankly, too much information. My goal is to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so that you can feel better today and feel better for longer. I'm also a huge believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us. So that's another theme that we'll explore together. Today, I sit down with Dr. Gemma Newman her second time on the show, to talk about menopause, a topic that I have wanted to cover for quite a long time now, was just waiting for the right guest and and moment, and here we are. And rightly so, pretty much every female who reaches their late 40s, early 50s, will go through menopause. Some a little earlier than others, and some a little later. And here's the thing, while the term menopause is, I think, a word that's familiar to many. I'm not sure we all fully understand what it is and why it occurs, the symptoms that can be experienced during menopause, the associated health concerns that menopause may give rise to, and how both symptoms and associated conditions can be managed and hopefully improved through medical and lifestyle interventions. So that was the aim of today's conversation, to shed some light on these things and on a topic that is, to be frank, grossly underrepresented in discussions pertaining to health and wellness. Specifically, we covered the physiology of menopause, why and when it occurs, symptoms ranging from hot flashes or flushes, depending on how you say it to weight gain, to fatigue, to body pains, to vaginal atrophy and painful sex, hormone replacement therapy, the benefits and risks of this, how diet can affect menopausal symptoms, supplementation, and other lifestyle tips that may help when navigating this period of life. And if all of that sounds like an episode dedicated only to female listeners, It's absolutely not. Ultimately, by being across this information, all of us, male or female, can be more empathetic, caring, supportive, and really just a better partner, friend, or family member to whoever it is around us that is going through menopause transition. So with that said, this is the brilliant Dr. Gemma Newman. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you. On the other side, Dr. Gemma Newman, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Simon. It's really good to be here.
0: It's been a little while since you were last on the show. And uh, you're back to talk all things menopause, which I want to get to in a moment. But uh, last time we connected, you just released your book. And I'm sure that was a huge whirlwind for you. Uh, tell us how that's been and, and give us a bit of an update into uh, your life since we last caught up.
1: Ah, well, it has been a bit of a whirlwind. And I I know that you know what that's like having um, had your book out as well recently. And it's been a really wonderful time just being able to share the message with so many more people. It got really successful, number one bestseller in popular medicine and green living and veggie cooking. Um, Isn't that
0: amazing? Did you realize that it was going to be received so well?
1: I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. You never do. I think when you embark upon something like this, um, but you hope that people will resonate with it and you hope that what you have to say is useful. So to see that people really enjoyed it and learned so much from it and loved the layout of it and the colors and the science and the recipes, oh God, it was amazing to 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 be able to do that and share it. So yeah. And, and still now, I mean, I did a talk last night to people that don't live that far from where I work and some of them hadn't heard of the book and they were looking through it. They were absolutely loving it. And it just, it, it was a real thrill to be able to share it Mm. much more widely. And yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. How did you feel when your book came out?
0: Yeah. Well, similar, similar to that. And I knew I put a lot of hard work into it but you're always a little nervous as to how people will receive it and I've just been you know astonished with the number of messages of support that I've got from people every day people talking about how they're putting various things from the book into practice and they're feeling better and I love the ripple effect in where someone gets the book in their hands And then they've told their friend who's told their friend. And then I get the long story on the email and I read them all. (laughs) And um, that's what lights me up. So, uh, you know, I'm super happy that I uh, put pen to paper. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, me too. It's a lovely feeling. So, yeah, thank you.
0: So menopause. Yes. We're going to take a bit of a dive into menopause and it's not a, a topic that I have covered yet on the show. So I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that you've been able to join us and uh, walk us through this. Perhaps we start with a very, very basic question. What is menopause? And as I understand, there are different stages of menopause. So perhaps we, we define menopause and, and those different stages
1: Yeah. um, Most women will know about menopause to some degree. And I think actually I'm reminded of a quote by Rod Stewart, who said that many more marriages would survive if men knew more about menopause too. So I'm actually really excited to talk about this with you because I think it's something that all women should be prepared for. And so should the people that love those women. So yeah, definitely. Menopause essentially can be defined as having had no menstrual periods for a year. So it's kind of defined retrospectively. Uh, Your periods become less frequent, but actually in the perimenopause, the time around menopause, you might find that your periods are more frequent because your ovaries are fluctuating in how much estrogen and progesterone they're producing. So you'll find that you can start to have commonly start to have perimenopausal symptoms where your periods become perhaps more frequent, heavier, uh, more uncomfortable, and things like hot sweats, body aches, and things like that could potentially start to happen. Even from the late 30s, you might start to get Mm -hmm. perimenopausal symptoms. And commonly then those symptoms could potentially intensify in the mid 40s up to the 50s. The average age of menopause is 51. In the UK and Australia, mm-hmm. uh, but that varies throughout the world. Forty-nine is the average age for Black populations and Latino populations, and yeah, it's it's basically a decline in your ovarian function, so that your oestrogen hormone, specifically, but also your progesterone, would mm-hmm. drop, and you start to notice the physical effects of that. But actually, premature ovarian insufficiency (POI) can happen much younger. Um, so I think there's about one in a hundred women will, uh, have this effect sort of before the age of 40, uh, and then maybe one in a thousand under the age of 30 and one in 10,000 will even experience it in their teens. Gosh. And it's important to realize that.
0: What would the, the causes of premature ovarian insufficiency be?
1: Well, sometimes it just happens naturally, and there's a, there's often a family history linked to that. Um, but it could also happen because of a medical procedure. So mm-hmm. for example, if you have a hysterectomy because of um, extremely heavy periods, uh, prob- mm-hmm. problematic fibroids, endometriosis, uh, severe sort of premenstrual disorders, uh, PMDD as a last resort, many women will then undergo hysterectomy, Mm -hmm. breast cancer, um, endometrial cancer. There's a variety of different things that once you've had your womb removed, essentially it can plunge you into an early menopause. You have a very sudden shift in those hormonal symphonies and you get potentially much more extreme symptoms if that happens to you. So it can happen naturally. and, And as I said, the most common reason that you might know that you're having problems with um, ovarian insufficiency is if you're struggling to conceive and then you start to do like, various tests and you discover that you know your your ovaries are not working so well your fsh follicle-stimulating mm-hmm. hormone, um, is raised. But you have to have two readings over the course of four to six weeks mm-hmm. that are raised, as well as low estrogen, to actually diagnose it. It's important to be aware of because you know, many women don't know that it's a potential thing that could happen. And you know up to 5% of mm-hmm. women will still ovulate, which is important because if you can catch those um, you know, those eggs at that time, you may even be able to preserve some fertility later down the Mm -hmm. line.
0: So what are those tests again that that someone would do to see whether they may have primary ovarian insufficiency?
1: FSH is the most common follicle stimulating hormone Mm -hmm. and that rises because your body's trying to get the ovaries to produce estrogen. So that Mm -hmm. goes up to try and stimulate the ovarian production of estrogen. And that's that can fluctuate around perimenopause. So some women like to get some blood tests done around the menopause itself to see if they might be going through it, but really it's a clinical diagnosis. It's made through symptoms uh, more than anything else, but FSH is the primary way of being able to figure out whether whether these hormonal shifts are happening mm-hmm. in a blood test.
0: And so this may seem like a silly question, I'd like to cover the the basics here before we get into managing the, the condition and things that people can do to reduce symptoms. Why is this happening from a physiological point of view? Why does menopause occur?
1: Well, that is an interesting question because most mammals don't have a menopause actually. Um, In fact, you know, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't happen, obviously, in insects and birds and amphibians. It would only happen in mammals. And it only happens in two types of mammal, humans being one of them. Uh, Any idea what the other mammal might be, Simon?
0: Gosh, putting me on the spot here.
1: (laughs) Nobody really knows, don't worry.
0: Maybe a dolphin.
1: That's a good guess. That's a really good guess. Actually, it's the orca and oh, and go. the pilot and the pilot whale orcas and pilot whales have a menopause and so do humans and there's a hypothesis that the reason we have a menopause is so that we can be useful to society and the continuation of the species after our reproductive years it's called mm-hmm. the grandmother hypothesis lots of anthropologists have looked at the hadza tribe and what they find is that Postmenopausal women are greatly um, respected in those uh, communities. They forage, they provide more food than they eat, they provide childcare, um, they allow younger generations to have more children because they're able to look after those children. And essentially, you know, if you look at orcas and pilot whales, it's a very matriarchal kind of way of living. Like the the mother looks after the children and even the grandchildren as they go through the ocean in their you know in their pod. so actually we should celebrate menopause it's it's a gift in some ways and i do think it would be really useful for for women if we could recontextualize menopause mm. because there are big societal differences mm. in how women experience it
0: perhaps let's walk through what are the the common symptoms do all people going through menopause experience some symptoms? Are there ones that are more common and and ones that are sort of less common? This is such an interesting chat. So do all
1: women experience symptoms? Not necessarily. Again, I talked about menopause and culture earlier. There was a really interesting study done by an anthropologist in 1975 in India, and she interviewed 500 women and none of them experienced menopausal symptoms at all. And she was trying to understand why, why they didn't experience any symptoms. And she discovered when interviewing them that actually their quality of life improved dramatically post-menopause. After they stopped having periods, they were no longer required to wear a veil. They were allowed to socialize with men. Uh, They were allowed to be in, in society. And they had a higher social status due to their wisdom. And they had more say in the home because especially if they'd had sons, they were having their family living with them their daughters-in-law. So they actually developed um, a higher sense of self-esteem and they had a much higher quality of life, which I found really fascinating. And you can interview different populations around the world and they all have slightly different experiences of what menopause is. In a Japanese study, they found that women in Japan didn't actually even have a word for hot flushes or hot flashes, as they as they're called in the US. And the most common symptom that they described was shoulder stiffness. Interestingly, which happened almost equally as much to men. So that's not to say that symptoms aren't severe; they can be extremely severe, but that they are experienced differently by different women, and. We're not really sure why that is, but some of the symptoms can be extremely debilitating. And we know that when women undergo surgical menopause, so when they have their womb removed for other reasons, those symptoms can be much more dramatic. It's thought that part of the reason for increased symptoms is diet and lifestyle. So it's not just about culture, it's about the things that we eat the amount that we move the amount that we drink alcohol the amount that we sleep they all have really important factors that will help to determine how many symptoms we get um but yeah i think quality of life is important too and you know we live in a culture that really i think puts youth and beauty on a pedestal and I think a lot of women feel that, you know, when they're losing their youth, they're losing their visibility in society, which I think is a really important sort of social context for what we experience here in the Western world. But yeah, diet and lifestyle have a big role to play as well in how we experience these symptoms. The main symptom that most people know is that is the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes, the night sweats and the resultant insomnia which can be extremely debilitating. You've also got uh, things like body pains. Now, a lot of women don't realize when they're starting to get sort of deep muscle aches and bone aches, it's actually as a result of that drop in estrogen that they're experiencing. And it can happen to about 30% of women, maybe more, because as I said, they don't often necessarily realize that it's because they're going through the menopause that they're having these pains. Um, Lack of sleep, mood, changes as well. There's really interesting shifts in things like gut permeability, uh, increased risks of certain autoimmune disorders. Cardiovascular risk shoots up as well because of the metabolic changes that happen as a result of the drop in estrogen. and Even things that you might not think of like uh, Dry skin, Uh, there are estrogen receptors in the eye, so you can get dry eyes. I've had one patient whose only symptom of menopause was extreme dry eyes, which she found actually really interfered with her quality of life. And vaginal symptoms, it's important to talk about. Um, It's not just vaginal dryness for some women. It can be actual sort of vaginal atrophy where those soft tissues of the vagina start to thin and weaken. And some women will experience severe symptoms. Others won't, thankfully. But some women will find that they'll have extreme itchiness or burning, inability to sit down. Sex is extremely painful for some women, and it really is important to talk about because women find that embarrassing, and there's a lot of shame around it. Sometimes they don't even talk to their partners about what's happening, and then it can result in, you know, the partner feeling rejected it can really ruin you know your 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 marriage your job um, it's a really big thing and there are things that we can do to alleviate or prevent that so I wanted to take the chance to talk about those vaginal symptoms because again there's a lot of embarrassment around it when there really shouldn't be
0: yeah we should be able to have a conversation about physiology and how we can help people I'm just thinking yeah. here is there a male equivalent? to menopause
1: not in the same way because part of why these symptoms can be so problematic is the extreme fluctuations in hormone levels that can occur around the perimenopause and then that drop uh, that happens very distinctly at menopause whereas for men hormonal changes happen much more slowly so for example most people are aware that you know, our testosterone and estrogen, uh, our sex hormones essentially will gradually decline over the years. Uh, and the same with with you know, things like thyroid hormone, our thyroid function very gradually declines as well. But it's it's that precipitous drop that I think accounts for a lot of the symptoms that women will experience. It's essentially the difference between the ovaries working to produce all the estrogen you need to them no longer functioning And you will still produce a little bit of estrogen from the adrenal glands and from fat cells. And I think that's probably partly why women experience these metabolic changes around menopause as well, because the body's very clever. It always aims to maintain some form of homeostasis, right? So we know that fat cells can produce estrogen and... That's partly why we do have that increased visceral fat deposition around menopause. 65% of women will suffer from obesity after menopause because the body wants to make sure that you've still got some estrogen. So it stores more fat deposits to maintain that um, that homeostasis. So you start to get something very similar to a a metabolic syndrome where you have uh, high blood pressure and uh, that visceral fat deposition, insulin resistance, which then could potentially leave you at higher risk of diabetes then. So those changes are much more prevalent in women because of the way that the ovaries
0: stop working. You mentioned some of those health conditions that sort of coincide with menopause, dementia and bone mineral density loss, um, thyroid problems. Are these coinciding because of the changes in hormones, you know, in that they are actually related to menopause directly, or are they just coinciding at the same time uh, as a result of natural aging?
1: Well, it's probably a little bit of both, but when it comes to things like bone mineral density, uh, there's a, again, there's a big drop. So as an example, you know, from the age of 40 onwards, women might lose about half a percent of bone mineral density a year. And then, in the five to seven years following menopause, that crashes to about up to twenty percent of bone mineral density can be lost in that time period, which is huge. You know, this is why women are at higher risk of osteoporosis and fracture. It's because of that drop in estrogen. So, I do think it's important for women to know this because you know the British Menopause Society tells us that actually. The best treatment to prevent bone mineral density loss and osteoporosis is actually HRT, hormone replacement therapy. It's important to recognize that the changes in estrogen levels are really important for all sorts of different physiological processes. And the reason is estrogen helps to support osteoblasts, which are the things responsible for the creation and maintenance of our bone health. They create bone essentially. And so if estrogen supports them and then the estrogen is gone, then they can work much less effectively. And that explains that uh, big drop in bone mineral density that we can experience around menopause. There are ways to mitigate that, HRT being one of them, but there are many ways in terms of our lifestyles and diets that we can help to mitigate that. But yes, these changes are much more uh, prevalent because of menopause and heart disease. Let's, take, let's talk briefly about heart disease. You know, this is a big deal. Men know a lot about how heart disease can affect them, but women don't necessarily link their symptoms with heart disease. And once you've gone through menopause, your visceral fat deposition that we just talked about means that you are at greater risk of heart disease once more. You know, your cholesterol levels can start to rise, um, and you know you start to get those atherosclerotic plaques forming, which which you were protected against previously, and. What's really shocking to me is, you know, there was a report by the British Heart Foundation back in 2019. And it said that when women go to hospital with a heart attack, they're 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed than men because people are just not looking out for it in women. Even though more women die of heart disease every year than breast cancer, it's, it's, it's a really important thing to be aware of. So yeah, I think... HRT interestingly is another way actually of minimizing heart disease risk. Uh, and a lot of studies are showing us that, whereas there's been a big uh, drive against HRT since the you know since the sort of the, the naughties.
0: Yeah, I wanna I want to dig into all of that for sure. So let's let's walk through this. You went through the three sort of stages before perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause. Let's start with perimenopause. If someone comes in to your clinic to see you before transitioning into menopause and says to you, Gemma, do you have any advice for me from a lifestyle point of view to prepare myself for menopause so that I have as smooth a menopause as possible? Sure.
1: It can happen from like the late thirties onwards, people don't necessarily really realise that. But if they come in and they want to experience a smooth menopause, then a lot of the things I'll tell them would be very similar to the things that I would tell them at menopause and beyond. Uh, The advice is still good advice. Um, So... We can get into this in more detail in a minute, but ensuring that you have a fiber rich diet, um, ensuring that you're looking for good, reliable sources of uh, plant based protein, um, thinking about the role of minimally processed soy products in reducing some of the symptoms that we would experience, uh, moving their bodies, the importance of exercise for maintaining bone strength as well, looking at stress. Stress and anxiety is very real around menopause uh, and that time. And, you know, estrogen also affects brain function, which is why a lot of women experience sort of memory issues and a bit of brain fog and uh, feeling that they just can't do the stuff that they used to be able to do so easily. So, just preparing yourself to think, okay, I need to prioritize sleep, make sure that I'm getting as much restorative sleep as possible. Looking at alcohol is a big one. I think that there's a big culture. Certainly during the pandemic, there was this big culture of you know mummies struggling and, and you know they they were sort of grab a, a glass of wine and that's sort of wine o'clock, you know. Um, and I think actually some of the issues that we face should be should be eased by more than alcohol because alcohol has really sort of negative effects around menopause or sort the of perimenopause. You know we have less. Alcohol dehydrogenase, which means that we're not able to metabolize it so well, you know. So that makes all the symptoms worse. Like the night sweats and the flushes and the anxiety can become worse if we are drinking, you know, even moderate amounts. Interestingly, so things like not smoking as well. And I'll talk to women about smoking. So there's a variety of different things actually that they could do, and you know, I, I could also talk to them about HRT where it's appropriate. Because you know, for for perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms within sort of those five or 10 years around that transition, HRT is really considered to be now one of the gold standard treatments to alleviate a lot of those symptoms. So I might talk to them about at least thinking about those things, assuming they don't have any contraindications.
0: Let's assume that we're hearing HRT for the first time here so hormone replacement therapy. What is it? Why is it used? Who are you prescribing it to? How long does one typically take it? And you know, are there any risks that people should be aware of? Is it safe? What does the science say about all of this?
1: Hormone replacement therapy is basically where you supplement estrogen and progesterone that you would otherwise have been producing. So it's a lower dose than you would get from oral contraceptive pills, for example. Um, It's a smaller amount. And what it does is it helps to alleviate some of those symptoms that we were talking about earlier. And You know, it's not just about quality of life. It's about reducing risks that can actually have a big impact on our mortality rates, um, on our risks of heart disease and things like that. So, and, you know, we mentioned about osteoporosis. And, you know, what I think is quite interesting is looking into the history of HRT a bit. So it kind of helps us to contextualize how people feel about it now. And oestrogen itself was actually first isolated back in 1929. Um, They found it in the urine of pregnant women. And it's from the Greek oestros, which means mad desire, and genon, which means to reproduce. So that's why it's called oestrogen, which I think is really interesting. (laughs) And um, initially, they tried to extract it from uh, pigs' ovaries, the ovaries of sows, which I'm glad they stopped doing, because um, you needed about a ton of of sow uh, ovary to make six milligrams of estradiol, which is the active component of estrogen. Luckily, they figured out that they could actually extract it from the urine of horses, and so you know, pregnant mares, they they extracted estrogen from their urine, which is why they you know they created a product called Premarin. And many people may have heard of Premarin because it it was used for a very long time. In fact, it still is used today as a form of HRT. But luckily, (laughs) we don't use um, horse's urine anymore to make it, (laughs) if you're pleased to know. Um, And there are actually far more modern preparations, which I think it's important for women to know about. So there's a big, long history. Um, I think in America, they started using it in, in as early as the mid-1940s. It didn't come to the UK until the mid-1960s, maybe even later in Australia. But it was a revolution for a lot of women. You know, Many women started taking it and feeling so much better. But there were a couple of studies in the early noughties that put pay to that, kind of scary studies that I'll sort of get into the weeds with you a little bit about if,
0: if you're interested. Yeah, I do have a question for you. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. medicine, like... Drugs that help lower blood pressure. I think generally people accept those as beneficial, but when it comes to hormones, I think people treat them a little bit differently. And I often hear this kind of idea well, and and it's a similar idea to what I hear with the pill, is that we should just let the body do its natural thing. And I'm sure you get this all the time. You probably have patients coming in and they've read something, or being told something from a, a friend who no doubt has great intentions, but this patient is a little confused and they come in and, and and sort of are talking to you about that. How do you approach that? Do you have any sort of views on that?
1: Well, first of all, I listen because people often get ideas and expectations around, you know, uh, around their treatments from culture, from society, from loved ones. And I understand the argument that you want to just let nature take its course. You know, why Why would you supplement something which is just nature's way of getting your body to sort of change? And on the one hand, I can accept that as an as a important way of thinking, but on the other hand, I think if we know that there's a treatment that could actually alleviate or prevent dramatic bone loss, precipitous hot flushes, insomnia, sweats, improve overall mortality in women, then why would we not want to know about that? I think if we if we can at least understand some of the data surrounding it, we can make a more informed choice. So some women will still choose not to you know, use HRT, and that's absolutely fine. You know, they should do the thing that that makes them feel that like more aligned to whatever they want to do. And as I say, lifestyle is very important. I've had patients that have completely turned their menopausal symptoms around using the power of lifestyle and diet. Um, But it's also something that can be absolutely life-changing for other women, and especially women who undergo surgical menopause. So if you've had your womb removed, which a lot of women still do, it's absolutely essential, unless you have a reason not to, to start HRT, because you're only Essentially, exposing yourself to the hormone levels that you would otherwise have had as a, as a woman living in the world. So, yeah, you know, and there's a lot, I guess, about our lifestyles that's not natural. The fact that I'm here talking to you across the globe um, using this technology—that's not natural. Yeah, you know, we we die very early sometimes in life because of childbirth. One in seventeen women in Afghanistan will die during childbirth. Is that natural? Well, I suppose, arguably it's natural, is it necessarily what we should expect? I'd say no.
0: Very well said. So back to the, the HRT and the science, and you were, you were going to bring yeah. up some of your notes there. If I'm correct, there are different types of HRT. I'm assuming that different studies have looked at different things. When you are discussing this with a patient and they say, well, what science is out there? How do we know that this works and is safe? What are the best pieces of evidence that speak to that?
1: You're right. There's so many different types. There's over 50 different types on the market. You've got gels and patches and tablets, (laughs) all sorts of things. So I think not all the studies will have been on all the different types and brands of HRT, but there are some overarching principles we can look at. And the reason that a lot of women became scared of HRT was because they were worried about excess risk of things like breast cancer. And that was as a result of something called the Women's Health Initiative study that was back in 2002. Um, It was a study on US women. And it was quite dramatic at the time. They decided to stop the the study early, stop the arm of the study of the women that was started on HRT, because they said that uh, there was increased risk of breast cancer, heart disease, stroke, and blood clots And there was a big headline about it. And Mm. almost overnight, 66% of women who were on HRT stopped it because they were worried about those risks, which is huge. But we need to actually try and figure out well what really happened with that study. And what you look at, when you look at the study, you realize that the average age of the women in the study was 63. And do you remember I said about how the perimenopause can begin much earlier than that? And the menopause on average happens around about 50 51 in, in the UK. When you start HRT later than that, you've, you've actually already tried to treat something mm. when the horse has already bolted. You know, they've already started to develop those risk factors for heart disease.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of intervening late with a, a lipid lowering drug after someone has had decades of exposure to very high cholesterol mm. and then not and then not seeing a, a huge effect in those studies. It's a similar sort of thing.
1: It's a similar sort of thing, yeah. And there is a there is a window of opportunity when it comes to reducing the heart disease risk. You know, if you start HRT uh, within sort of ten years of menopause before the age of sixty, then that's your window of opportunity. And they hadn't done that, and also. What was really interesting is that one of the principal investigators on that study, Professor Langer, actually um, wrote a paper afterwards stating that the initial results of the study, when they were assessed, most of the participating investigators were excluded and had not approved it. And he also said that the, the headline about breast cancer risk was irresponsible and factually incorrect because there was not a statistically significant risk of breast cancer in that study, which I found absolutely shocking to read, especially when you consider how many women stopped the HRT as a result of those those findings. Um, and you know what was really interesting is, you may do you know David Katz?
0: Yeah, yeah, I know David. He's brilliant.
1: Yeah, he is. He's brilliant. And there was a study that he co-authored in 2013, and they actually looked at these US women who stopped HRT and they began. They sort of extrapolated that in the 10 years from 2002, when women stopped taking the HRT, a minimum of 18,601 um, deaths and as many as 91,610 deaths potentially occurred. For from women who premature, like prematurely died because they did not take the HRT because of those heart mm. disease risks that they had um, then taken on. So it's very interesting to look at that history and how women, I believe, have actually potentially been failed over the years.
0: Yeah, it makes you think as well about how you know we have a peer-reviewed process in place, but if a study is published that has problems and there are headlines like that, you know, the horse is bolted. By the time someone comes back and retracts it or says something, many, many people are not going to see that, right?
1: Exactly. It's never as it's not, it's, it's sort of like a retraction or, a, a you know, it's something in the back pages of a journal. The headlines have already gone out there. Women are already scared and that's it. Now you have a whole generation of women who I think have potentially missed out there. So, yeah. So looking at what data we do have, you know, in the UK, we follow what's called NICE guidelines, um, stands for National Institute of Clinical Excellence. And they collated all of the data and evidence we've got up to this point. Um, and they actually reworked their guidelines to ensure that HRT was included in their guidance. And it's now considered to be the most appropriate treatment for symptomatic women within 10 years of menopause without clear contraindications to it. So. Things have changed, certainly um, in the evidence, but a lot of practitioners and a lot of women in the world are still unaware of that.
0: Let me ask a question on that. It's it's indicated within 10 years of menopause, if someone's listening now and they haven't had HRT and they're post-menopause, is it therefore not something that you would consider in that stage or is it not as black and white as that?
1: It's not as black and white as that. I think when we're talking about the window of opportunity for reducing cardiovascular risk, it's very specific, but there are many other symptoms that people experience uh, that can still be relieved by HRT if it's appropriate. And, um, you know, women can suffer for up to 15 years, and this is like a third of the female population, you know, one in four of us will have pretty debilitating symptoms. So it doesn't mean that once you're over the age of 60, you shouldn't have it. It just means that you're not necessarily reaping some of the same benefits. Remember, I mentioned about the bone loss that you experience in the five to seven years after menopause. You know, that's something that you can't necessarily, you know, you can't turn back the hands of time, but you can optimize what you have. And in some cases, you can improve it. So, you know, um, even starting HRT, starting an exercise regime, shifting your diet, doing, you know, sort of weight sort of uh, resistance training and so on. These are things that could actually prevent, uh, improve your your bone mineral density. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you, I think that window of opportunity has gone, but there's still lots of benefits from it for women who who have symptoms, even up until the 60s and beyond. So it's very individual. Some women experience flushes, you know, into their 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you just repeat that window of opportunity? I just want to make sure that we got that right and that I uh, repeated it correctly. What within, is the actual uh, window of opportunity?
1: It's it's roughly within ten years of menopause or before the age of
0: sixty. Okay, so within ten years of menopause means during. I just want to clarify that how I'm hearing this. During,
1: yes. So you know you could start HRT in the perimenopause. So even when you're still having periods, you could start HRT, mm-hmm. and you could also start HRT after you stopped having periods. There's different types, mm-hmm. which we can talk about if you want to. There's a cyclical HRT, which women start when they're still having periods. And there's continuous combined HRT, which women have when they're no longer
0: having periods. Mm-hmm. So other than the sort of timeline and and one being better for a certain stage and then the other being better, are there lots of different options within the the world of HRT and from a, a science perspective, what are the, the, the best ones most effective for for reducing symptoms and also some of these other complications?
1: So I mean it's the estrogen component that helps with mood changes and uh, vaginal atrophy and dryness and flushes and things like that. Um, and it's the progesterone component that helps to maintain the health of the womb lining. So if you have no womb, If you've had a hysterectomy um, or if you have a hormone coil as contraception, you will only need the oestrogen component of HRT. You won't need the added progesterone. The progesterone is only really there to make sure that the womb lining doesn't thicken because if the womb lining thickens, then you're at increased risk of endometrial cancer down the line. So the progesterone is there just to keep the womb lining healthy and thin The oestrogen is what does the magic essentially in in, in the HRT. And there are different types, which is important to recognize. So if you have oestrogen in the form of a patch um, or in the form of a gel that's absorbed through your skin, there's no excess risk of blood clots at all. Mm. Whereas if you have it in tablet form, it has to be metabolized through the liver. um, And so you you do have a slightly excess risk there. And we could talk in more detail about the exact risks as well. But um, essentially, yeah, I think patches are also quite helpful because they give you a much more regulated concentration of estrogen through the skin. Part of the reason, as I mentioned before, why women experience so many symptoms around menopause is the fluctuating estrogen so Mm -hmm. not only is it the drop but it's actually the sort of wild swings up and down as the ovaries Mm -hmm. are trying to kick out more estrogen you have much higher levels at some time than you would normally expect and then much lower levels and it kind Mm -hmm. of is a bit like a seesaw
0: hey friends i hope you're enjoying this episode it's simon here just a quick intermission to remind you that my book the proof is in the plants is now available in this book i cover common myths about plant-based diets Evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. In terms of patch versus tablet, why is it that someone might want to go down the tablet route if the patch is more effective?
1: Yeah. uh, Patches have been used for a long time. A lot of women prefer tablets. Mm. They're used to tablets, easier to remember, but patches do offer the advantage of a more sustained concentration of estrogen. And as I mentioned, there's no increased risk of blood clots at all. And and gel, estrogen gel pump. So you can actually have a sort of a bottle with a pump and you just have a squirt of gel and you can rub it on your skin once a day, Mm -hmm. maybe when you're cleaning your teeth, for example. And interestingly, studies are showing us that if you have a body-identical estradiol formulation of gel or patch uh, that you use with micronized progesterone, you actually have the lowest risk in terms of HRT, and there's no increased risk of breast cancer at all in the first five years. So there was a a 2018 systematic review, um, and that was really exciting that, you know, women have been worried about breast cancer for so long. They've not been able to necessarily quantify that risk, but with patches and gels in estradiol form with the micronized progesterone, uterogestan, which is what we use in the UK, there's no increased risk whatsoever Mm -hmm. within the first five years of treatment.
0: And so if you are taking HRT, how often would you need to see your physician to check hormone levels are healthy and that the dose that you're taking is working. What do you recommend there?
1: You have to have follow-up first up to see what's important to you, um, whether you have any risk factors, because some some women, you know, HRT is not suitable for. So you know, we, we have to be aware of that. And also, you know, to have a discussion around those risks and benefits, which we can talk about now. But we tend to follow up, certainly in my practice, uh, I'll, I'll chat to women about what they want, what suits them, what symptoms they have. And then the formulation that they have if they choose to use HRT will depend on their symptoms. So like if, you, if you're having vaginal symptoms and you have vaginal atrophy, then you might just use gels, um, pessaries. Uh, locally around the vagina. And again, that's no increased risk of breast cancer at all. Women who've had breast cancer can use it vaginally to improve those symptoms and improve their sex life. Um, And you don't necessarily need a huge amount of review when it comes to that. But when it comes to uh, the, the patch or the tablet formulations, I tend to want to review women after the first three months and then after the first six months. And then we would definitely want to monitor general cardiovascular risk factors like blood pressure, at least annually, if
0: not Mm -hmm. more. So let's talk about the typical benefits and risks of hormone replacement therapy that you would like people to be aware of. What are the common ones?
1: Yeah. So let's start with the benefits. Vaginal atrophy, as I mentioned before, is, is really debilitating. If you can prevent that, it's great because you know having an active sex life is important to a lot of women and men and so if you want to maintain that in your relationship then then using vaginal estrogen preparations can be really helpful if that's something that you know that is important to you um but also even if you don't have a partner i think It's important to maintain, uh, you know, sort of the the suppleness of that area so that you actually can also support your pelvic floor. You have reduced risk of urinary infections because having atrophy can increase risk of urinary infections and incontinence as well. So it's not even just about your sex life. So, yeah, uh, that's one of the major benefits. Um, And if you don't have a sexual partner and you want to maintain Good pelvic floor health. Then, you know, taking these uh, sort of estrogens vaginally, and also uh, even things like um, masturbation and using certain masturbation tools is helpful. Um, dilators, as well, potentially, can be helpful to maintain that vaginal health that I was talking about earlier. So, anyway, um, that's one of the benefits. And there was. If we look at some of the data around it as well, so there was a study from 2012 that followed a large group of women uh, who were taking HRT for 10 years, beginning at menopause. And what they found was a significantly reduced risk of mortality, heart failure, heart attacks, and no increased risk of cancer, DVT, or stroke in those women in that cohort. So we have physiological benefits, but also lifestyle benefits. So if you're troubled by hot flushes, now they, they can be really debilitating. Mm. You know, I've had patients describe it as like this rising heat that takes over the body and completely makes you unable to function. You just feel suddenly mm. hugely hot. Uh, you have to try and get out of the situation that you're in. It's, it's a horrible mm. feeling. Can they um, come
0: on at any time or is that it's sort of a nighttime thing?
1: Oh yeah, they come on at any time throughout the day. And then you know, at nighttime, you know, you might be sort of sweating, your bed sheets may be soaked. You know, it causes insomnia. You can't obviously sleep well through that kind of experience. So those sorts of things are also mitigated mood changes. You know, many women experience mood changes at menopause as well, because of the way the estrogen affects our brain functioning. And in fact, it's considered to be the primary treatment now for menopause related mood changes is hrt so again i know i'm banging on about hrt here but i do think it's important to try and put some of the myths to bed around it because there's a generation of women as i said before who've really missed out there and i don't want i don't want other women to have that same experience so yeah there's a, there's a number of benefits for bone health i talked about that as well you know the ability to prevent bone loss is is a big thing but you know it's not suitable for everyone, and there's still plenty that women can do without HRT. So if HRT is, you, know, you don't think it's for you, or you have a reason that you can't take it, there's plenty of other things that we can do. But I do want to get specific on the risk because it doesn't come without risk. But let's put that into context so that p- women can make an informed choice. Okay, So if you can imagine that in every 1,000 women who are between the ages of 50 and 59, 23 of them will develop breast cancer over a five year period. So if you imagine women between ages of 50 and 59 follow them for five years. a thousand women, 23 of them will get breast cancer roughly. Now when you add in women who are taking combined HRT, there are four extra cases in a thousand. So it's a lot less than people imagine. Mm. Alcohol, let's take alcohol, right? Maybe just a couple of units a day, which is not very much, it's within the guidelines. That can increase the amount of cases that those women experience by five, five extra cases. Obesity, which I said affects 65% of women after the age of menopause, that can increase the risk of breast cancer by an extra 24 cases. Exercising. For a couple of hours a week, could potentially reduce the amount of cases that those women experienced by seven. So, you know, you can see that these kind of numbers that we're talking about, they're not big numbers. And, you know, there was a Lancet analysis of women who were average weight, who were on HRT for five years from the age of 50, and they experienced one extra case of breast cancer for every 50 women which is about a 2% increased risk overall. And then that can increase to two extra cases after about 10 years. So, you know, there is a risk, but again, putting that into context, if you're using an Mm -hmm. estradiol patch, remember I told you about the 2018 analysis, a patch with micronized uh, progesterone, you don't have that excess risk. So just to kind of put that into context for people
0: as we kind of round out this section on HRT, which is spun into 45 minutes or so here, but it's been <laughs> great. Um, you mentioned there that some women perhaps cannot take HRT. What would be some of the, the reasons for that?
1: Yeah. The, I mean, the main reason would be uh, breast cancer, experienced breast cancer, but also you know, untreated hypertension and active liver disease, If you're currently suffering from a blood clot uh, without anticoagulation, um, previous blood clot without anticoagulation, uh, things like that. Um, So things that that hopefully you could get sorted, a lot of them through um, medical care. But breast cancer is, is one of the main reasons not to take HRT. And there are other options as well, as I said. So talking about vaginal atrophy, women who have breast cancer can still use topical vaginal preparations. Um, for that. And there are loads of other things that we can do to mitigate those hormonal symptoms, which, of course, we can now come on to with regards mm. to lifestyle. But talking about the medical side of things, uh, there are actually certain antidepressant preparations that can be good for the vasomotor symptoms of menopause uh, for those who are interested to try those. So, you know, it's, it, it's not just HRT, thankfully. Mm.
0: Okay, great. I think we, we did, you did a great job there. Let's spin into lifestyle, starting with diet, which I know you're very passionate about. Yes. My first question here is a broad one Are there any dietary patterns or food groups in particular that are known to be helpful or perhaps harmful when it comes to managing the symptoms of menopause?
1: Yes <laughs> to put it to put it short short way um, I think the headlines would have to be fiber and minimally processed soy. Uh, those are my food headlines okay Gosh,
0: soy that must be a hot topic for uh, for menopause let's let's dive into that.
1: It is it's a hot topic. Um, so soy yes. <laughs> We let's talk about the Japanese ladies that we were discussing earlier. Do you remember I told you about the questionnaire and Mm. they didn't even have a word for hot flushes or vasomotor symptoms? It was initially thought that perhaps there was a genetic component to that, but it may also be the fact that they eat a lot of minimally processed soy products. So things like miso and edamame beans and tofu and tempeh, things like that. The reason being the soy isoflavones can actually reduce hot flushes and one of the metabolites of those isoflavones is particularly useful in doing that but not everybody can metabolize it and so i think it's interesting probably about a half half of people may not be able to metabolize that very easily and that's thought to be to do with our microbiomes as well so when we have these uh, bacteria in our microbiome that can help us to metabolize these isoflavones among other things they can actually also minimize our hormone um, dysregulation symptoms like hot flushes. So I think that's why soy has been shown to be so beneficial uh, in a sort of a huge cohort of people. And in fact, I'd love to share with you a recent study that I know you're gonna be really interested in. So it was published in 2021 by Dr. Neil Bernard, and they did a randomized controlled trial where they wanted to look at alleviating vasomotor symptoms or uh, um, VMS, as they call it. And they had women who were experiencing at least two hot flashes a day or flashes, as they call it in America. And they had an intervention arm who had a low fat vegan diet with half a cup of cooked soybeans a day as the dose, if you like. And they had a control group And uh, they were given a menopause-specific quality of life questionnaire and a mobile app to track their symptoms of their hot flashes in real time. And then they had a once-weekly Zoom meeting with the research team uh, to talk about their symptoms and what was going on. And that was true both for the control arm and the intervention arm what they discovered was pretty amazing actually they had a total of 79% reduction in hot flashes and for those who experienced moderate and severe hot flashes or hot flushes uh the amount reduced by 84% and nearly 60% 59% demonstrated complete cessation of their hot flashes so they just completely disappeared that is hugely significant so that's worth knowing about and There was a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the randomized controlled trials available that shows that soy isoflavone supplements are significantly more effective than placebo at reducing the frequency and the severity of hot flushes. So we probably need more research to determine the daily dose. I mean, that's a great study that I mentioned to you from last year, but I tend to recommend having every day either uh, unsweetened soy milk, edamame beans, calcium set tofu or tempeh just to try and minimize those mm-hmm. vasomotor symptoms that people can experience. And, you know, soy is a pretty great bean anyway, you know, it's a complete protein. It's got fiber, um, iron, zinc. and yeah,
0: yeah. We've spoken a lot about soy on this show. That's for sure. My, <laughs> my question there is, so do you, do you recommend the, the isoflavone supplements at the moment, or is it just to focus on the soy foods? or a combination?
1: I think foods, generally speaking, if you can get your nutrients from food, that's generally the best way of doing so. It doesn't always apply, but when you can buy uh, minimally processed soy products and enjoy them in your diet, then yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd probably recommend that over taking a specific supplement.
0: Thinking about that intervention study with soy, Neil Barnard often uses a low-fat diet and some listening may be thinking, I wonder if low-fat is important for managing menopause symptoms. Do you have a, a view on whether it's low-fat that's important here or more so the type of fat in one's diet that they should be focusing on?
1: Sure. It's important to focus on your MUFAS and poofers. So monounsaturated fatty acids and polyunsaturated fatty acids. So you can get these In our plant-based diet, anyway, from you know things like olives and um, avocados, nuts and seeds, I think that that's going to be a far better choice than a diet that's high in saturated fats, um, which have been shown to increase cardiovascular risk. Uh, And we know that the metabolic changes of menopause will leave women susceptible to that anyway. So I would say, you know, when you have a diet that's higher in fiber and lower in saturated fat. You're going to get all of those benefits of those fiber rich foods, you know, reduced risk of cancer, type 2 diabetes, improved gut health, improved weight management, improved heart health, improved immune function. Whereas if you are prioritizing sources of saturated fats, primarily things like junk food and animal products, then you're just not going to necessarily experience those benefits as a proportion of your diet. But also, you know, these kinds of dietary sources may. Enhance uh, the amount of arachidonic acid that we are exposed to, which can increase the amount of prostaglandins that are produced in the womb lining. And when we have more prostaglandins in the womb lining, we have more um, blood loss around the perimenopause, more cramping, more pain. So, you know, I do think that there are definite benefits from minimizing saturated fat sources and enjoying healthy fats as part of your balanced diet.
0: You mentioned fiber. Why is fiber particularly important during this time?
1: Fiber is great because it allows... I mean, there are estrogen receptors in the gut. I mentioned that when you go through menopause, it can have an impact on your uh, gut motility, uh, which can actually then make you more constipated, right? Because if your gut's not able to move the poop through as as efficiently, you're going to reabsorb more water. uh, Then you're going to reabsorb more excess hormones that you don't need. And so constipation is definite no-no. And fiber reduces that risk of constipation. It allows you to poop out all of the things that you want to poop out, all of the excess hormones. And that's really important. Um, and in fact, you know, we talked a little bit about the estrobulome. There's a substance called beta-glucuronidase, which is produced by some of our gut bugs. And that has the potential to then increase the amount of active estrogen that gets reabsorbed into our bloodstream. And so having the right balance of gut bugs is going to be really important uh, and fiber-rich foods help to do that. And so do you know, prebiotic-rich foods and probiotics as well, potentially, although there's that's a really burgeoning area of research when it comes to menopause.
0: Just quickly, while we are talking about the microbiome here, you mentioned soy and some people being able to metabolize certain isoflavones in soy and some not. Is there anything we can do to better our ability to metabolize these and if someone cannot just to be clear here soy is still a healthy food to include in their diet right
1: it's really when I was talking about that it was more specific to a, a subsection of, of the of the isoflavones so you know one of the isoflavones that you, you break the soy down from is Equal and you know some people can't have that equal producing, um, sort of isoflavone part, whereas others can. So mm-hmm. we don't really know, uh, but when when you have a microbiome that is rich in um, bacteria that can help you metabolize those estrogenic sort of compounds, it helps. And that essentially would be a fiber-rich diet. Time and again, that's been shown to be beneficial. The variety, I know that again, in your podcast, you talk loads about trying to get your 30 different Fruits and vegetables a day, that's going to be really important because the larger the diversity of the microbes in your gut, the better the chances of you being able to uh, metabolize those isoflavones appropriately. You know, and as I mentioned though, there is some burgeoning research around certain types of lactobacilli and how they can actually minimize bone loss in the menopause. But that's really early days.
0: Okay. So you're not yet sort of making any recommendations on that clinically.
1: Clinically, I would say to people, we don't yet know about the role of lactobacilli and specific types of probiotic, but what we do know is that if we feed them right, then you're going to get the maximum benefits. So having prebiotic rich Mm -hmm. foods, like I don't know, like onions and leeks and chicory, Mm -hmm. and I've got a list somewhere, but there's quite a lot of them, um, and just generally fiber um, is going to be helpful.
0: Okay, cool. So that's uh, fiber. We talked a little bit there about fat. I'm curious on your thoughts around protein. So is extra protein helpful at this time in a, in a woman's life? And what, what should we be thinking about in terms of animal versus plant protein and these symptoms and and trying to mitigate some of the complications that are associated with menopause?
1: Yeah. I think it is important to look at protein. You don't need a protein supplement. If you're on a plant-based diet, you can get it through your diet. Um, and I think especially after the age of 65, but you know even before that around menopause for women, I think protein needs are worth exploring. So just be aware to have, you know, lentils and beans and nuts and seeds uh chia seeds flax seeds tofu tempeh quinoa you know these are all really important sources of protein that you can really maximize in your diet to help you maintain your muscle mass moving forwards as your body is aging and you know when you talk about the whole protein package i think what's true for menopause is also what's true for most of the stages in our lives especially as we get older and you know, we have to look at what's in that protein package. So you know, when you have a plant protein, you've got those phytonutrients, antioxidants. Uh, and in fact, menopause actually also coincides with an increase in low-level um, inflammation in the body. You have raised inflammatory markers as you go through menopause. So an anti-inflammatory style of diet is actually gonna be just as important. And that's something that we know a plant-predominant diet can provide for us. Whereas if we are focusing primarily on animal proteins, uh, then there are some, don't get me wrong, you've got some great nutrients in animal proteins, but we also have some more detrimental effects. So we do have extra hormonal exposures when it comes to uh, the actual uh, meat that we're eating, we have antibiotics exposures, which can have a potentially detrimental effect on our microbiome. You know, We have heterocyclic amines, those cancer-causing compounds, especially in you know, barbecued meats. There's There's a whole host of ingredients in that protein package that may not be as beneficial. And that doesn't even include the saturated fat that we talked about earlier. So yeah, I think... On balance, when you look at the data that we have, especially on all cause mortality, there's no question that plant protein Mm. trumps animal protein in the long term.
0: I have a question. I came across some information, and and also a few people sent this to me. I'm wondering if you've looked at plant based diets and timing of menopause. I was reading very quickly, and I saw there was a UK. Uh, women's cohort study, I think, and it found that vegetarians seemed to enter menopause. It was about three quarters of a year earlier, I think, in that study. And the, I, I quickly read and the, the researchers sort of commentary, and they were thinking that maybe that's because plant based women have lower estrogen levels naturally. And I'm just I'm just wondering what you think about this. Is that a common association? Clearly, it's epidemiology, so it's not cause and effect. Is this potentially an issue, or is it a good thing?
1: Uh, yeah, I read that study, and it was interesting to me. I don't know why that is, because it's as you say, it's a it, it's an epidemiological study, but. I suspect, given the mechanisms that we just talked about, you know, if you have a meat-heavy diet, you may be exposed to extra estrogen over the course of a long period of time. Um, and IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one as well, that your body produces as a result of increased consumption of meat products, which increases your risk of cancer, you know, you're know, you going to be consuming a lot more of that potentially over a lifetime. And the combination of those factors may be enough to actually prolong the menopause you know make it sort of slightly later than it would otherwise have been but that's speculation based on mechanistic probabilities rather than mm-hmm. actually knowing for sure um yeah it's interesting i did read that study mm-hmm. it was a uk women's cohort study of over 35,000 women and they found that if you had legumes you know chickpeas lentils beans you went through menopause uh, 0.9 years later proportion a day and if you had b6 it was about half a year later if you had uh, enough sources of b6 a day if you had zinc it would be about 3 months later on average of course <laughs> you can't predict this for on an individual level and oily fish would uh, prolong it for about 3 years and refined pasta and refined rice made it about a year or a year and a half earlier So it may be some of the constituent parts Mm -hmm. of the diet that can have some role in when it happens. Um, And it's an interesting area of of, of investigation. I don't think we know quite enough about that yet.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner and snack recipes along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. You mentioned Neil Barnard's study, which was on the, the low-fat vegan diet. Has there been a lot of research in this area? Is there any sort of large cohort studies that have looked at the type of diet that someone follows and severity of symptoms?
1: I wish there were more data on this and more studies that have been done because I think it's a disservice to women that we don't know more about this. I read a study about how a plant-rich diet can reduce uh, period pains. Um, And that's partly to do with the availability of SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, which kind of acts as a bit like a a sort of a carrier molecule that allows you to only sort of use the hormones that you have when you need them. So it's quite handy. Um, Women who have PCOS have less of it. And women who have normal kind of periods and don't have PCOS tend to have a bit more. And women on a plant-based diet seem to have even more of it, which is helpful because it allows you to then potentially modulate your estrogen exposure. So you get as much as you need, but not too much.
0: Let's talk about supplements. So if someone is following a very plant-rich or a whole food plant-based diet, I'm wondering, do your recommendations for supplements change for a female as they go through pre-menopause, menopause, menopause and and post-menopause?
1: I think pre and post-menopausal women are particularly susceptible to marketing around supplements. Many women at this stage of life, especially around the perimenopause and all the symptoms that we talked about can be very vulnerable to marketing when it comes to trying anything they can to relieve their symptoms. And we don't have much data on it. So I'd say that there are some potential benefits from supplements. But if you can try and go for something with traditional herbal registration or consistent concentrations of ingredients, or perhaps been third party tested, so you can feel confident that what you're taking is at least partially regulated. Having said that, you know, there are some potential benefits from supplements. I think vitamin D is important for everyone, regardless of age, in the UK, maybe not so much in Australia, you probably get a little bit more sunlight. But you know, we're not going to make much vitamin D here. So I would strongly advise vitamin D to help regulate the amount of calcium as well that, that you can uh, use for your for, for maintaining bone strength. So vitamin D is an absolute must. B12 on a plant-based diet obviously is an absolute must. I think that's hopefully been drummed into the plant-proof community. Um, But also around menopause, uh, many people over the age of 50, male and female, will struggle to absorb the right amounts of B12 from their diet regardless of what they're eating. If you are diabetic on um, anti diabetes medications or um, and acid medications, you'll also absorb less. So, B12 is an important one. Many women like to take a vitamin B complex. And in fact, the NICE guidelines in the UK state that vitamin B6 can help with PMS type symptoms, which are also potentially worse during the perimenopause as well. So, you know, there is benefit from, I guess, a general vitamin B complex if you want to, but you can get a lot of those through your diet if you've got a healthy a varied plant-rich diet. Otherwise, omega-3s are always important. Again, I talk about that anyway. seeds chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts, algae oil is, a, is an, a nice addition. We don't yet have quite the evidence that we would like, but it makes sense. But otherwise, I think the rest of the things that we try are very much kind of anecdotal. So we give it a go and see if it works. Many of my patients have actually sworn by sage, you know, sage leaf capsules. We've only got one study, I think, from 2016 that came out of Iran that showed that 93 women took sage and reported benefit. So, oh. But we don't have enough data on any of these, really. So you can add some sage leaf capsules mm-hmm. to, your, to your routine, or you can have it in a tea with a little bit of like hot water and lemon. Black cohosh could potentially mimic the estrogenic effects in the body. That's been talked about a lot. Red clover is a natural source of isoflavones. Ginkgo biloba is another one that's been used. It's a tree extract, um, and it reportedly helps to dilate the blood vessels and in the brain. Contains some phytoestrogens, and it's potentially something that could improve brain fog. Agnus castus, which is said to improve anxiety and hot flushes. CBD, uh, evening primrose oil, supposed to help PMS and night sweats around the perimenopause. St. John's wort is another one, which uh, is potentially helps hot flushes and depression, mild depression, anxiety, sleep problems. But again, let's take St. John's wort. That's a hormone inducer. So it could interfere with other medications you're taking, including things like cancer therapies and um, SSRIs, which is a type of antidepressant. So we have to be somewhat cautious when it comes to filling ourselves up on all these different mm. supplements. But, uh, you know...
0: That list is uh, quite the cocktail. I, uh, I know,
1: don't try them all at once. <laughs> there's
0: some very interesting names in there, so I won't try and repeat those, but I'll, I will make sure that they're in the show notes. Something else that just came to mind is iron. I'm, I'm curious, does, does a woman's iron needs decrease post-menopause? Is there anything to yeah. be aware of there?
1: Essentially, a woman's iron needs will return to... A male baseline because they're no longer bleeding. I think it's 8.7 milligrams a day, which is recommended for men and postmenopausal women. Uh, and if you're having periods, then that will rise to about 14 milligrams or so. So, yes, the iron needs definitely. Uh, Are not the same. I don't think you need to worry particularly about iron overload, especially on a plant-based diet, um, because you you you're, you've got non-heme iron in your diet, which means that you have far more control over what you use. But yeah, you don't need as much.
0: Yeah, I guess I was only thinking about someone who perhaps before menopause was having a sort of high dose iron supplement and things may change with regards to whether they need that or or how much. That's Uh, true.
1: And also thyroid, That's yes, that's reminded me, you know, our thyroid hormone changes uh, around menopause. So if you had hypothyroidism before menopause, you may need to actually reduce your dose of thyroid hormone that you're taking because mm-hmm. the, you have less estrogen, which means you also need less of the thyroxine or levothyroxine hormone. If you start HRT, then you may also find that your dose of levothyroxine slightly increases conversely.
0: And on the topic of thyroid, what are your recommendations for iodine for plant-based folks to ensure that they maintain good iodine status? Honestly,
1: I tend to suggest that they take um, a non seaweed based iodine supplement about 150 micrograms a day, because we have no reliable way of measuring iodine concentrations. Uh, We don't do it routinely in the GP surgery where I, you know, we don't do it in the NHS. And many of us are likely to potentially be iodine deficient, whatever we eat, uh, because there's not a great deal of natural sources of iodine. it's present in dairy milk because of the way that the dairy is produced. Um, It's fortified in a lot of plant milks as well, which is great, but you'd have to check the the packet to know whether you're having iodine fortification in your plant milk. Um, And you can get it from seaweed, as I mentioned, but the amounts are variable. If you have kelp, you may have too much. Uh, Nori sheets are a great source of iodine, but um, I think because you just don't quite know how much you're getting you could take an iodine supplement as well,
0: which is helpful. Most reliable. It's interesting. I've heard from several people in the UK that plant-based milks are fortifying with iodine. Yeah. Um, I wish that would happen in Australia. They're they're obviously a few years (laughs) behind, but hopefully they're listening to this. I think it's an important one to at least uh, consider.
1: It is because in the UK, we don't iodize salt. So I don't know if you do that in Australia, but in the US, they iodize salt, which means that fewer people will have iodine deficiency because they're sprinkling iodized mm. salt on their food. Now I don't recommend a high salt diet yeah. because that has its own risks of cardiovascular disease, but um definitely fortify your milks, plant-based milks, if you can.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was there is some iodized salt in Australia. I was actually happy to see there's a a brand and I have no affiliation with them called Low Salt. I think they're around the the world now. And low salt is made with I think 66% less sodium. So they use potassium chloride instead as like an alternative. And they now offer an iodized version. So that's a potentially a better option for someone that is, that is getting their iodine through a, a sort of salt, particularly someone yeah. with, with high blood pressure, I guess.
1: Uh, Yeah. And also, I mean, going back to the thyroid question, I think the way to maximize thyroid function as we age is to make sure we have not only adequate sources of iodine, but also adequate sources of selenium. Mm. A couple of Brazil nuts a day should do that nicely.
0: That's a good point. And that may kind of feed into the next question, but I want to talk about skin health and hair. You mentioned beauty earlier, and, and I think that this is where skin and hair often comes up. I know with regards to the questions I got, again, this was a very, very common one with women wondering, is it normal for skin to become a little less elastic during this period and perhaps for hair to to be a little thinner? Is this something that is temporary or is it something that lasts forever? And is there anything that can be done with regards to improving this through lifestyle?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned before, estrogen receptors are throughout the body and that includes the skin And, you know, it does affect the hair as well. It can do. So yes, the hair can become thinner. I think main thing really would be to uh, maximize uh, your sources of things like zinc and selenium and um, making sure that you've got a nice varied plant rich fiber, rich diet, lots of uh, maintain good hydration levels as well. Dry skin is is more common. Um, So yeah, it's it's really about maximizing those healthy plant foods, making sure that you're getting enough of those plant-based zinc sources um, and selenium. Uh, Yeah, that's probably the main thing I'd say through lifestyle. Some people like to try collagen supplements, um, which, you know, there is one study I think that shows potential benefit for skin health, uh, but we really don't have enough data on that yet. And I think, you know, when we consume collagen for the most part, we will break it down in, well, we will, we will always break it down into its constituent amino acids, which you can get from plant foods ultimately. So you just have to you know, think about your, your
0: plant-based sources of protein too. Mm-hmm. Very good. And you may have already answered this within all of your other advice but we, we spoke about mood and energy. I'm not sure we spoke about improving libido, uh, but the three of these kind of go hand in hand to a degree, uh, energy, mood, and libido. Is there anything else other than what you've mentioned so far with regards to diet or supplements or superfoods that can can help with these things?
1: Yeah, so... Extreme fatigue is one of the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. And I think women often underestimate that. Um, libido is very complex. Our sex drive and why you know we are our desire essentially is, is a complex thing. I think in terms of diet. I think essentially, again, it comes back to the headlines I mentioned at the very beginning, fibre is great. It will help you to create a favourable microbiome which will have a positive impact on mood and brain health. I guess in terms of sex drive, women will experience probably two to three times more loss of sexual desire than men around midlife. and That's probably related to a drop in their oestrogen levels for sure. But it doesn't always happen. You know, some people feel more liberated by not having periods, not having to worry about pregnancy. Maybe the kids have moved out of home, they feel a bit more free. But, you know, a lot of women do experience lack of desire. And a lot of that could be around pain. If sex is painful, you're not going to want to be having that much of it, you know. And we talked about vaginal atrophy before and how that can really impact sex drive. So I think topical HRT would be a really interesting way forward for women who want to prevent um, these kinds of issues in the vaginal area. But also it's about, you know, motivation. You said energy, you, know, you have to feel motivated to have sex. Um, it's, it's a lot about your relationship as well. You know, chronic illness. I, a lot of people will experience more chronic illness around menopause and beyond, which will impact their sex drive as well. So there's a lot to it, but I think things that you can do to improve it. I mentioned vaginal estrogen, regular sex itself. It can promote vaginal health and blood flow. But as I said, so does things like masturbation and the use of sex toys as well. Um, You can use lubricants, vaginal lubricants to help ease any discomfort around sex. Uh, Vaginal oestrogen, I've talked about lots. Vaginal moisturisers can be helpful for day-to-day use. So the lubrication would be just for sex and the moisturisers would be for day-to-day. But also, don't forget, medications can affect sex drive, you know? So um, SSRIs, antidepressants, they can affect our libido negatively. Uh, Blood pressure medications, which people will start to take often around menopause and beyond, uh, they can affect the libido as well. So I think you know there's a lot of different factors, but ultimately, it comes down to looking at what we can do physically, so through our estrogen exposures and topical estrogens, um, dilators, uh, moisturizers and lubricants, but also what we can do mentally sex therapy, counseling, yoga these kinds of things would also potentially improve desire and uh, well-being around menopause.
0: Given how multifactorial this is, what you were just speaking about there, it really uh, speaks to the importance of having a very comfortable relationship with your physician, someone that you feel comfortable sharing such personal information with.
1: Yeah, it can be. And I try to make it an open conversation, but I cannot tell you how many women I see who struggle with libido and sex drive and pain during sex. It has to be something that people feel free to talk about with their doctor because only then can you start to consider ways in which it could be improved. And it's life-changing, it's relationship-changing, life it's job-changing, relationship job you know, it's all the things that are important to us, our sense of purpose, our connection with people we love. It can all be impacted by these things. So having that confidence to bring this up, know that you're not alone if you're having struggles, if, you, if your sex drive has plummeted, if, you, you know, if you've got pain and sex as well, please go and speak to your doctor and you know, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed.
0: I put up a post asking the Plant Proof community if they had any specific questions about menopause ahead of this conversation. And one of the very, very common questions that I got was, is weight gain inevitable? During menopause, and there were lots of different women describing this as menobelly. belly. Obviously, that's a very colloquial term that's that's being used there. What do you say to someone that that comes in that is you know saying, Gemma, I'm trying, I'm trying to eat really well. I'm, I feel like I'm eating less food. I don't want to eat any less because my diet won't be nutritionally adequate. I'm trying to exercise, but I've put on this weight, and I just I can't seem to lose it.
1: Yeah, it's difficult. Once we understand that lower estrogen has a knock-on effect on visceral fat deposition, first of all, we can be kinder to ourselves. You know, we, If we have these changes, it's normal and natural to experience a shift in fat deposition. I talked about the homeostasis of the body earlier. You know, these fat cells produce estrogen and the body wants to maintain a balance. Having said that, we know that this or fat's not healthy for us. So, you know, potentially I'd say be kind to yourself, but remember the best things you can do are have a fiber rich diet and move your body and prioritize sleep and reduce stress. Reason being, you know, that fiber will help to fill you up, but it also has all those other tremendous benefits we talked about. It can help with that feeling of satiety uh, so you don't want to be feeling hungry all the time you, you don't want to be going on a diet they, they, you know they don't tend to work but if you maximize the plants as much as you can make sure you've got your know, plant-based sources of protein moving your body and you know just recognizing that you, know, you won't have the same body shape that you did before the menopause it's just not gonna necessarily be possible to achieve the same body shape that you had. And that's okay. Just have to remember that that's okay, but you can still reduce your weight and reduce your visceral fat by having more fiber and uh, moving your body, uh, things like that.
0: What other aspects of a, a woman's lifestyle outside of diet can be helpful? During menopause, to to help manage some of these symptoms,
1: definitely cutting back on alcohol is a big one. Uh, you don't have to be teetotal if it's something that you really enjoy. Um, I'm personally not teetotal, but I do recognise that, especially as our bodies uh, have less oestrogen. Um, I mentioned earlier we're not going to have as much alcohol dehydrogenase. We're not going to be able to metabolise it as well. It impacts symptoms greatly, especially anxiety. So think about how much you're drinking alcohol wise. Think about moving your body every day as much as you, as you can within your uh, lifestyle. Think about sleep. Now, try not to stress about sleep <laughs> because we hear so much about how important sleep is, but then if you're having hot flashes and night sweats and insomnia, you're gonna think, well, I can't sleep. So stop telling me how important it is, but try not to stress. Remember that when you're in bed, Uh, your body is still resting, your mind is still resting, and that's still useful. But aim to do things that will help you to prioritize that. So maybe less blue light at night, uh, blue light blocking glasses, less tech, no tech in the bedroom, uh, no caffeine past midday. Generally, perhaps limiting caffeine anyway might help with things like hot flushes, um uh, so yeah i think looking at ways that you can make your lifestyle amenable to better sleep where possible is a good thing uh, and stress sometimes women get a raw deal when it comes to society's expectations and what happens around menopause you know they'll have children leaving home they'll have elderly parents that they're looking after they'll have that feeling of invisibility that i think a lot of women feel when you you know you're not necessarily as respected in society. That's tough. There's a lot of changes happening all at once. And I think if we open up these conversations more with men and with women, then hopefully they can be understood and women can be respected and cherished as they move through these changes into a place of wisdom and joy. Um, Moving forwards, like it's not all doom and gloom. I've talked a lot about the potential issues, but actually, you know, there's a reason that we have a menopause um, and there's a reason that we live a long life. We are useful, we are productive, we are valued. And I'm hoping that these kinds of conversations will allow more understanding in society in general about what women go through.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. I feel like that's almost a great place to to wind this one up. So before we do, is there anything that you feel like we may have missed in this conversation that you wanted to speak to?
1: My main take home point is that I think we need to be kinder to ourselves and to other people. So I really hope that your male audience has listened to this. And I know we've gone into the weeds of HRT for quite a lot of it in the middle, but If your male audience can resonate with wanting to help the the women they love go through this, and if the women who are listening can remember to be kind to themselves through this process, then I think that you can have a very happy and a very healthy menopause and look forward to future years of longevity, health, and joy.
0: Well, that's a great message. Thank you so much for joining me again always a delight to have you on the show you're you're such an enormous wealth of knowledge and the fact that you are a a gp and you're seeing patients in the flesh and you're looking at the science and you're so evidence-based and then you get to put this into practice and you have such a a beautiful way of communicating it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to educate myself, educate the community. And uh, as I said to you last time, there's always a spot for you to come back and and talk to any topic uh, should you uh, feel the need in the future.
1: Thank you, Simon. I've loved every every minute.
0: There we go. As I said at the beginning and emphasized by Gemma, I really do hope that this introduction to menopause episode was absorbed and enjoyed by not only the female listeners of this show, but male listeners too. I personally walked away with several new learnings and certainly a number of other questions to explore down the track. Now, as mentioned during the episode... If you do want to read any of the studies we spoke about, get a copy of Gemma's new book, or get a list of the various supplements and natural remedies Gemma mentioned, such as sage and red clover, please refer to the show notes. One that I'll add here that we didn't discuss is specific to bone mineral density. In addition to calcium and vitamin D3, there is some high-quality evidence in support of vitamin K2 supplementation for postmenopausal women, with low bone mineral density. A 2013 double-blind placebo-controlled trial that spanned three years, found that compared to placebo, vitamin K2 supplementation significantly increased bone mineral density and bone strength. Now, importantly, the form of vitamin K2 to look for is MK7, not MK4. MK7 is better absorbed and is what was used in this study. The daily dose should be 180 micrograms. Again, that study was in a group of postmenopausal women with low bone mineral density. I talk about vitamin K2 in my supplement guide, which, as a reminder, is a free guide you can download at plantproof.com. That's plantproof.com. So if you want a bit more information on supplements, I recommend checking that out. Okay how did we do? Between you and I, I think we did pretty good. I hope so anyway, though I should probably let you be the judge of that. If you did enjoy this conversation and wanted to provide feedback or ask questions, please do reach out to me on the socials and Gemma. You can find Gemma at plantpowerdoctor. And of course, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of those places as plant underscore proof. And that's all I have for you today. Stay well, keep having fun, doing things that expand your mind and light you up. Lots of love to you. and look forward to catching up again in a few days time. Try not to stand me up. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.